Welcome to the WattPod, a journey into the world of the most exciting clean tech startups, powering the energy transition and our carbon-free future. We will learn about the journeys of these companies and their founders, their backgrounds, the hurdles they face, those they have overcome, as well as the breakthrough innovations they are delivering. We will also explore what investors and innovators are looking for as we head towards a cleaner, more distributed, more flexible energy system. What innovations and investments are required to ensure access to cheap, reliable, and responsible energy? Our guests bring a range of expertise and insights that will help us understand what developments are taking place. I look forward to our discussions with them and this journey with you. This episode is brought to you by Catalyst.Earth, accelerating net zero and beyond through blockchain technology. Sign up for your NFT at www.katalyst.earth. Funds raised go towards environmental and carbon removal projects. Paul Martin is one of the most vocal advocates for a fossil-free future. He is a leading voice in the fight against opium, often applied to the use of hydrogen. Paul is also the founder of Spitfire Research. Spitfire Research provides chemical process development and scale-up consulting services across the breadth of the chemical process industry, with a focus on transitioning to a decarbonized future. Paul, welcome to the WattPod. Pleased to be here. It's great to have you. Um, you've, you're very active in, in, in terms of what you're doing around, uh, around Hopium and looking forward to learning a little bit more about that. I thought what we could do is just kick off with Spitfire Research to start with. And you were telling me just before we jumped on um, a little bit about the origins, particularly around the, the name of Spitfire. I'd, I'd love if you could, could share that story with our audience, please. Sure. In 2014, I decided to convert my 1975 Triumph Spitfire, a little two-seater uh, sports car that I bought in 1988 at the university uh, as a project with my son to kind of help him learn and see what, what uh, was possible and also uh, as a learning experience for myself. And that project really spawned uh, a um, incredible journey of learning and uh, and then advocacy because the results were so dramatic i managed by building that car to drop that car's co2 emissions from source by 97 percent relative to the same car with a gasoline drivetrain so you know same car different drivetrain uh, the comparison is rather stark but the amazing thing was i was also i also had a prius and still have a prius and it dropped my emissions from my drive to work and back by 94% relative to my Prius, which is the best car that you can buy in North America still that doesn't have a plug attached to it. Now, partially that's the result of this amazing grid that we have in Ontario that's 40 grams of CO2 per kilowatt hour or less, but 80% of Canadians have access to such a grid. The notion that we should be driving around cars with gasoline in Canada, that most of us, uh, is just, it's mad. And uh, that's kind of how I got started. So Spitfire, <laughs> Spitfire Research is just a riff on my uh, Spitfire project. The unfortunate thing is that that car, I drove it back and forth to work spring through fall for four years. And then I was driving home in 2018 and somebody with a big Dodge 2500 dual rear wheel pickup truck so you know big monster pickup truck changed lanes into me and totaled the car 
But the electric drivetrain and myself fortunately came through the uh, collision just fine. And the drivetrain's now in a 1973 uh, Triumph TR6, a similar car, but a little classier. Um, so yeah, anyway, that's, uh, that's the story behind Spitfire Research's name. And this is part of the car that's sitting behind you here? Part well, of the remains right. of it? That's right. The, the, I took part of the hood that wasn't crumpled and sawed it off and kept it. And I've hung it up on my wall in my kind of surrealist background that I have here. Uh, and you may notice in the, in the video, you'll also see a, a print of a René Magritte painting, a couple of them actually, the eye, of course, the famous one there. But over my other shoulder is a, is a pipe. And underneath the pipe, it says in French, this is not a pipe. It's a, a famous Magritte painting. And that is the image that I used in my article explaining to people what this hopium business was about. That, that's a really good intro for, for us. Um, why, why don't you tell us about hopium? What is hopium? Well, it's not something I invented. Uh, I heard about it <laughs> from somebody else. And I wish I remembered who, who it was. But as soon as I heard it, I went, Yes, that's exactly what's going on in the in the decarbonization and energy uh, uh, marketplace of ideas at the moment. We have a massive pandemic of opium addiction. Uh, apparently, the term was first used in relation to uh, Barack Obama's first run for president. And what it's about is it's just basically, I mean, it's a, a jamming together of the words hope and opium. And what it refers to is the, the tendency to take people's hope for something that's good, okay? Something that's good and desirable and to use it to shut off their um, rational faculties and separate them from their money. And so this is the, uh, the problem. We have both uh, individuals and societies and their governments addicted to the notion that we will come up with simple inventions, as we've done in the past to, to uh, major problems, that will just simply wipe out this whole decarbonization problem and make it possible for, the, for us to keep living the way that we've been living without changing the way that we're living, without entirely changing our relationship with energy, which in fact we must do if we're going to deal with, uh, deal with climate change and deal with uh, our cause of, uh, of that climate change. So yeah, it's just diluted uh, optimism and, uh, and hopium is the perfect word to describe it. Now it's most evident in relation to the use of hydrogen as a fuel, but it's our, our, the marketplace of ideas in relation to decarbonization is full of hopium. There's hopium related to new battery technologies, related to, um, related to hydrogen, related to small modular nuclear reactors, related to all sorts of things. And yeah, we just seem to have an endless appetite for it. And of course, we're, we're, we're smoking the hopium pipe constantly. And it's not helping. It's not helping. It's and, making things worse. Yeah. And, and before we dive in a little bit around how it's being applied to hydrogen and some of those other use cases, why don't you tell us your concerns around this issue of hopium, you know, there is particularly in in innovative spaces where the energy energy transition um, is and, and efforts to decarbonize, uh, where you need new processes, you need new technologies to 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 be applied to help decarbonize the grid. Um, 
what's the concern around this? You know, there is this element of faking it till you make it in, in a certain startup environment. Um, and we need those sort of innovators and entrepreneurs in this space to help push the energy transition forward. Although, you know, I, I also believe that a lot of the energy transition is just about rolling out the technologies that we've got now. What do you see as being the major concern in this space? So I think the energy transition is about rolling out the technologies we have now, almost exclusively. I, I don't think, as an example, let's look at the chemical process industry, which is my area of particular expertise. We could decarbonize that substantially without a single new invention. And yet we are not doing it. Why are we not doing it? Because we have this notion that we can continue to burn fossil fuels while we wait for someone to come along with a better invention. That's just gonna make the whole problem go away. And that's delaying decarbonization. And some of that delay is happening because people are just hopeful. And some of it's happening because it's what, what uh, I think people have been referring to as predatory delay. So it's delay that's resulting from a desire on the part of people that profit from the status quo to keep the status quo in place for as long as possible, to, to maintain a social license to do things like take fossils out of the ground and burn them, which is their lowest value used to humankind. I mean, the, the father of the periodic table, Dmitry Mendeleev, famously said when, when asked what he thought about burning petroleum, well, you, you could keep your house warm by burning banknotes too. You, you know, it's to, to the mind of a chemist, the notion that one would take the source of 10,000 different molecules and materials that are equally valuable to and necessary to uh, a modern human life, uh, you know, a modern economy as energy is, uh, and, and instead burn it. It's mad. Future generations are going to look at us and wonder what, what we were smoking. I mean, we, <laughs> and that's it. That's what we were smoking. Uh, I mean, it, it, let's be clear, fossil fuels lifted a lot of people out of poverty. They, they made possible a tremendous transition, huge increase in human population. All sorts of benefits were derived. And while we didn't know that that exploitation was causing um, the climate to warm, we, or, or we weren't sure, then, okay, perhaps it was forgivable, but we've known for 30 years, which is basically the entire length of my career so far. And honestly, what have we done? We've done some things. I mean, LED lighting, solar, wind, uh, electric cars, uh, you know, the electrification of everything has become easier and easier. But have we really made the transition? No, we haven't. We haven't made, made it in earnest. And if you ask yourself why, the answer is really straightforward. We don't want to because we think it'll be expensive. That's the reality of it. One thing I've noticed with um, the recent increase in, in energy prices, and I saw an interesting graph just yesterday around the percentage that's being spent uh, uh, on energy as a percentage of total GDP, and it's on a country by country basis, it's you know tripled, quadrupled even. One thing that, that I've noticed is that these high energy prices are making a lot of people that don't really have a background in energy sit up and take notice of energy <laughs> for better or worse. 
So now I've got a lot of people and I've been working in energy for 20 years. A lot of people that are lawyers, et cetera, are coming out and telling me that the energy transitions crap. Renewables are crap. It's too expensive. Yep. And the reason for high energy prices are, are renewables. I'm, I'm sure you're oh, also yeah. just seeing some of this as well. How are you responding to that? Uh, I just tell them about my farm. So we have a little hobby farm uh, east of Toronto. I live in Toronto, but an hour hour and a half's drive from Toronto, we have a little hobby farm. And it's too far away from the power poles to make running power poles a, a sensible thing, to, to make a grid connection sensible. We could do it, but it would cost a, a bunch of money to install the poles and the wires. And then we'd be paying a monthly fee to maintain that grid connection. And we don't use very much electricity when we're up there. So we installed solar and batteries. And we have a backed up generator a gasoline generator for emergencies. And it costs us less, all in, it costs us less for that electricity than just the fees, the monthly fees would cost us to have access to a grid, even if we didn't use any electricity. And that price hasn't changed. It hasn't changed. The price of solar hasn't jumped by a factor of four or three or two or at all, yeah. it hasn't changed. It's such, and sorry. yeah, go for it. It's just, it's such a simple thing. And, you know, it, people keep telling me, well, you know, you can't, we can't manage the variability of renewables. And I tell them we've managed the variability of renewables just fine up on the farm. Yeah. I've got the oh, exact well, same situation. It's a hundred thousand dollars for me. This is Australian to put in the poles and wires up to our farm. So we're fully off grid. Um, we did solar and battery, but again, it's that last five, 10%. We need a generator. Ours is diesel. You mentioned yours is gasoline, which, mm -hmm. which is, uh, yeah, okay. So normally I'm, I'm more familiar with, with diesel backup generators, but just that five, 10%, I mean, there is a massive capital cost to go and install that generator up front, but you're inherently incentivized not to use it. You know, we, we don't, want to use it. So the cost for me, I don't know if you calculated your LCOE, but mine is around eight cents over the lifetime for the battery. And um, yeah, and whereas running the diesel generator is going to probably be about 30 to 40 cents minimum at the moment. I haven't calculated it, but I'd suggest it's something like that. Absolutely. I mean, there, we don't use very much electricity, so we don't we don't have a very big diesel, sorry, big uh, gasoline generator, and we don't run it often enough to make the difference between winter and summer starting between gasoline and diesel even worth considering. We need the generator in the in the absolute pit of winter when uh, uh, you know. <laughs> Well, you'd have, you'd have your panels get covered in snow in Canada. I exactly. <laughs> when there's a when there's a foot of snow on the panels, and you just you, you just can't manage to get enough hours of sunlight to melt the frost off the panels after you physically remove the snow, and so that's when you use the the gasoline generator. Now, on occasion, I'll use the gasoline generator just because I need power somewhere um, off in the bush. You know, I mean, I had to I had to weld a part onto my tractor down in the bush because it broke and I couldn't move the tractor. So I dragged the uh, the generator down there on, on our ATV and, and um, uh, ran it in order to run my my welder, and that's fine. You know, the, but the, here's the thing that drives me nuts is that we have people 
suffering over how we're going to decarbonize the last 10%. Like I use that gasoline generator with no regret whatsoever. You know, you could, you could probably run your diesel generator on biodiesel, just like I could probably run my gasoline um, generator on ethanol. You know, I might have to change some hoses and some seals and, and so on, but it'd probably run okay. And that would be the end of it. You know, I would have completely decarbonized the last 10%. But why am I going to bother when I've done the 90? It's just, I use that generator with no regret because I use it so infrequently. I, in fact, I have to run it every once in a while just in order to make sure that it will start when I want to run it. You know, to make sure that there's no junk in it, uh, in the carb or, or, or whatever. So, yeah, this this fascination with the last 10% is stopping us from decarbonizing the easy 90%. And that's what drives me nuts. And, you know, this whole business about hydrogen, it's all about the so-called hard to decarbonize sectors. And it's maddening because, honestly, hydrogen is a poor fit for most of those things. And in fact, hydrogen itself is a massive decarbonization problem that we must solve. I mean, we absolutely must solve it. Half the human beings on earth and their food animals would die, <laughs> they would starve if it wasn't for the fact that we uh, right now are able to make nitrogen derived fertilizers from ammonia that we make largely from either natural gas or coal uh, to make hydrogen, which we make without CO2 capture. I mean, it, this is probably, I, I, it's hard to imagine a more important thing for us to decarbonize if we wish to continue to survive in the decarbonized future. And yet we're, instead of focusing on that, focusing on making ammonia from hydrogen that we make from electricity and water, we're focusing instead on making hydrogen from electricity and water and using it to make ammonia to run buses or to make hydrogen again in Germany or uh, you know, to, to make hydrogen to use in fuel cells or other mad things. And it, it's very frustrating because honestly, you know, 99% of hydrogen production in the world to the tune of 100, 120 million tons per year is made from fossils without carbon capture. And we've made zero progress in decarbonizing that. So why don't you tell us a little bit about hydrogen? I mean, you know, yeah. giving us the, the the basic intro about why it's unique, how it does play a role in this space, some of the important factors for it, maybe some of the, the actual use cases and, and why it's been so front and center of the energy transition. Well, it's not new. I mean, we've been thinking about hydrogen as a decarbonization or, or an alternative energy strategy since the 1970s. And I was involved in one of the previous rounds of hydrogen-related hope addiction as an active participant in the late 1990s. I was working for uh, my former employer, uh, which designs and builds pilot plants for the chemical process industry. And we were working on a project for first Texaco and then Chevron that was intended to make small reformers to make hydrogen to, suitable for fuel cells from natural gas. It was first going to be used for transport and later it was going to be used for combined heat and power homes once they realized just how poor an application um, hydrogen was for transport. Now it wasn't really going to take off. And I, I love to tell the story because we worked on this earnestly. And myself, I'd been a believer in hydrogen 
as an alternative because it is so intellectually simple and it's it's so seductive you look at it and you think well we can't burn stuff anymore because of co2 emissions well what else can we burn well we can burn hydrogen we'll make water well <laughs> okay if you burn things in air including hydrogen you make nox okay so the only time that you make only water when burning hydrogen is when you use a low temperature fuel cell and you you quote unquote burn it over a catalyst but the uh, uh the point being here that it's intellectually seductive but when you look into it the devil is in there waving his pitchfork at you from the details and and he's not hiding. I mean, he's waving it pretty vigorously. And, and, you know, that's with one hand. And he's raising the middle finger at you with the other. Because, honestly, the, the, the impediments, the difficulties of hydrogen as an energy storage medium, an energy transport medium, or as a fuel, they're rather obvious. They're structural meaning that they're related to things that won't change, like the properties of hydrogen as a molecule and its thermodynamics. We can't innovate our way around them. We can't fix what's broken. It's a square wheel. The only way you can make it into something useful is to make it into something else. And when you do that, when you make that transformation, when you take hydrogen, you make it into ammonia or methanol or any number of other things that you can make hydrogen into. What you're doing is you're trading even more energy inefficiency for greater effectiveness. And whereas we, you know, my gasoline generators, the triumph of effectiveness over efficiency, will willingly trade um, effectiveness over efficiency because I have a small can full of an extremely energy dense fuel. I can pour it as a liquid with no complicated technology at all into that generator. I can pull a cord and I get energy on demand in the quantity and quality that I want. Uh, and the fact that it's only 30% or 25% thermodynamically efficient uh, only troubles me when it comes to paying to fill the container of gasoline back up again. But you see, if I start with hydrogen, I'm already starting with something that's quite thermodynamically inefficient because of it, it's, and this is another misconception that people have. People think that the problem with hydrogen is that each of the individual steps, like the step of taking electricity and breaking water apart to make oxygen and hydrogen. They think that step is too inefficient. So innovation will make the step more efficient in the future and then it'll all be fine. But hydrogen's problem isn't that the steps are too inefficient. The problem is there are too many steps. When you're done, you end up with this molecule, hydrogen. And it, okay, great, you can burn it, but it's got low energy density per unit volume. It sneaks through every hole. It diffuses right through, in fact, materials of construction to the point where it sneaks between the grains of metals and, and causes them to lose cohesion, and get cracking problems. But the, the other thing that happens is that you end up, you, you have this, this molecule and it's big. It occupies too much space. It makes it hard to move and energy intensive to move hard to store and energy intensive to store. And so that when presented with these facts, one immediately goes, oh, I have to turn it into something else. I mean, this thing, uh, you know, uh, it's a rattlesnake. <laughs> you know, I, I can't use it. Uh, I have to turn it into something else. So right away, immediately, they start looking for alternatives like liquefying it 
for making ammonia or making metal hydrides or hydrogenating other molecules uh, in order in order to uh, store hydrogen on them. And every one of those is the same. You know, they differ in their disadvantages, but they all have the same disadvantages. The, the disadvantages that you're wasting yet more energy by putting in yet another two steps, make X and then break X apart again in order to make hydrogen. And by so doing, you're trading even more energy for uh, greater effectiveness. So why does efficiency matter? It matters because of cost. If I have a process that requires me to buy 10 kilowatt hours from you, in order to make one kilowatt hour back home again. That's good for you. It's not good for me. I can't afford it. And that's that's what's going on with largely with this hydrogen. Um, hydrogen is a fuel thing. I, I literally have a two panel meme, you know, it, it has two pictures of Drake, the, the hip hop artist who lives in Toronto here. And in the one Drake is, you know, he, he's smiling and, and pointing with approval and, and it says, uh, green hydrogen to replace black hydrogen. So of course we want to keep eating. So we want to keep, we want to replace all of this black hydrogen made from fossil fuels without carbon capture with green hydrogen made from renewable electricity. And then the other one, he's doing this, and he's averting his, averting his gaze and this is an unhappy look on his face. And that one says hydrogen as a fuel. And it's literally that simple. Now I've got article after article explaining in detail, giving the thermodynamics and explaining in detail why that's true. But that's basically what it, what it boils down to. If someone's pitching you hydrogen as a fuel, doesn't matter if it's for transport, for heating, or for energy storage, look at them with, you know, with a jaundiced eye, as they say. Think about it carefully because you're being sold a bill of goods and somebody expects that invoice to be paid at the end and you're gonna be paying it. There's, there's so much to unpack in, in what you've just described. And I think if I can try and summarize, I think you summarized it very well, but there are use applications for hydrogen in terms of decarbonization going forward. And some of those applications are to do things like replace fossil fuel-based um, uh, fertilizer, for example. So producing yep. ammonia from renewable electricity rather than from uh, refining processes. The other message was, let's leave the difficult to abate sectors for now and focus on rolling out um, rolling out the energy transition. So things like flights, you know, planes, etc. Energy from fossil fuels remains the best solution for that. There may be opportunities to, to decarbonize, you know, to electrify short distance flights, but long distance there's no other um, carrier that's as efficient in terms of its energy density as jet fuel is. So probably a bit difficult to to it. Well, we can make we can make uh, sustainable aviation fuels from biological resources. Uh, we can definitely do, and there will be enough to permit us to do so. So, uh, you know, if we have to ration biofuels, they're going to aviation because aviation is definitely the highest value use for them. Uh, they'll also go to, um, uh, biofuels will also go to truly remote and rural transport where um, fueling infrastructure and fuel logistics determine whether or not 
the application is feasible. I mean, no one's going to drive an electric truck up a nice road to resupply a First Nations community in Northern Canada. That's just never going to happen or, or all the way into the Australian outback. Very unlikely that that's going to be a, a feasible way to, to uh, go forward. So biofuels fit those bills. Uh, so the notion that we, we can't do anything there and we must use hydrogen is just a non sequitur. The, the notion that um, that these are the high priority things to pursue is also very questionable. I, I mean, let's let's look at road transport, you know, cars and light trucks. I mean, electric vehicles there are an obvious solution, as I've already mentioned, at 97% reduction by a dumb guy in his garage just making an electric car out of an old British sports car. I, if I can do that, imagine what an OEM like Tesla can do. It's just, you know, it's a no-brainer. Why aren't we doing it more aggressively than we're doing it now? And the reason is we don't want to because we think it'll be expensive. What about other things like steel? Yeah, steel's a good application for hydrogen. And you see, here's the distinction. When you're making steel and you're using hydrogen, you're not using hydrogen as a fuel. It's not like you bung a bunch of hydrogen into a, um, uh, into a blast furnace to replace the coal. What you're doing is we have a process that's called the direct reduction of iron or DRI that reacts iron oxide with a mixture of hydrogen and carbon monoxide that's made from natural gas. Now that iron oxide will react with the hydrogen without the carbon monoxide being present. So that's been proven, it's been demonstrated, people have known about it for a long time, but that reaction is a reduction reaction. It's not using the hydrogen to make heat. It's not using hydrogen as a fuel. That's a high merit order use for any green hydrogen that we might happen to make and very logical and I support it. Now there are other alternatives. We might be able to do melt electrolysis for steel in the future, like we do for aluminum. And that would be very exciting, although the jury's still out. I mean, they've been working on it for over a decade and they're probably another decade before they hit, they're going to hit the market uh, in force, you know, and at scale with that technology. So it, it uh, is still quite uncertain. But yeah, steel's a good one. But the, the high merit order uses for any green hydrogen we possibly make are they're all replacing black hydrogen or they're replacing other reducing agents like hydrogen in reducing agent type applications. That's all of them. And the others where hydrogen is being used as fuel, uh, you know, home heating, transport etc energy storage those are all questionable now i'm not saying that there, there are no possible applications for hydrogen there but most of them would require us to be both very rich and very desperate one of the concerns and that that a lot of people throw up as well around the energy transition is um the number of commodities that are required you know if you think about batteries for example and given your experience having built your own car when you're calculating your tailpipe emissions, did you look through the supply chain as well to see what went into the batteries and how that how that might have? Can, can you give us some some insights from your perspective around that argument from people? And you know, a common thing that I tend to do is I throw up a photo of the Alberta tar sands, you know, in response to some of the. Um, ridiculous comments that come back and say, you know, this is a picture of a lithium mine and here's the Alberta tar sands. Thanks very much for your, your argument. Yeah, so, well, I mean, I mean, a, a lithium, a, a lithium mine uh, is mining 
in the case of my car, about two kilograms of metal. Uh, and it's done in proportion. Part of it is done actual, you know, actual mining of spodumene and minerals like that. And then you have to grind them and beneficiate them and roast them and, and, uh, and then leach them and produce the, uh, produce the uh, metal from that. But a lot of it's also produced from brines and producing lithium from brines is a matter of just evaporating off the water and allowing the various salts that are dissolved in that brine. Uh, by brine, I mean, uh, you know, a mixture of salts in water that's more concentrated than seawater by quite a lot. Uh, you just basically evaporate off the water and, and let each of the materials crystallize out one by one. And each of those materials is valuable. One of them is potash that's used in, uh, as a fertilizer in agriculture. Uh, and what's left at the very end, the most soluble thing, lithium chloride, is then shipped off to be made into lithium carbonate or lithium hydroxide that's used in making, making batteries. I ran the numbers for my car. My car, because of Ontario's incredible grit, it paid back the embodied energy of the battery in less than a year. And I, you know, I drove it back and forth to work for four years and then had the car crash. And now it's in another car and it's 2022. It's almost eight years in and that battery's still going strong. So the notion that there is some kind of a embodied energy penalty that prevents electric vehicles from making a difference is just wrong. It's just wrong. You know, people haven't read the LCAs. I have. I read them in detail. I read Dalhoff's paper in 2017 and then again in 2019 when she redid the, uh, the numbers and dropped all the uh, intensities in half because she looked more carefully at what people were actually doing. The other thing to keep in mind is that batteries are getting cheaper because they're getting less energy intensive to make. As you scale up a process and you go through this so-called rights law improvement process, where you figure out how to, how to do something better and more optimally, you reduce waste, you reduce energy input, and as a result of all of the and labor and so on, and as a result of all those things, the cost per unit drops. You know, every time you double how many of them you made, that you get better at it and, and the cost of the next doubling drops. Uh, that doesn't happen with increases in energy intensity generally. It generally involves a decrease in energy intensity. So batteries are already good enough. They were already good enough 10 years ago. They will absolutely be good enough 10 years from now. And in fact, the most exciting thing that I've seen in the technology development space, and no hopium here at all, although one has to be careful when listening to uh, company claims without being, being able to verify them uh, personally, is that the big uh, Chinese uh, company CATL, one of the biggest makers of uh, lithium ion batteries in, in uh, China, has announced a sodium ion battery. It is made with no components that are anything other than positively earth abundant. The active metal is sodium, seawater, salt mines, never gonna run out of sodium. The, the cathode, which is the big problem with lithium ion batteries, which is, you know, cathodes contain either iron phosphate like mine, or they contain things like nickel, cobalt, and, and uh, manganese. So you have problems with the, potentially with the cost of the cobalt and the nickel. Uh, the cathode in the case of the sodium ion battery is an iron um, cyanide compound. 
never going to run out of that. That's for sure. And the anode is hard carbon, which you can make from about a thousand different resources, you know, both mined and, and, and biomass related. Uh, nothing magic about the electrolyte, the, the films that are the, the foils that you coat the anode and cathode on, they're aluminum, no copper. This battery has the potential, uh, by the way, the, the performance in terms of cycle life, energy efficiency, energy density, all of those things. It's reportedly around where lithium iron phosphate was 10 years ago already, and they haven't mass produced them yet. So this is uh, looking to my mind uh, as something very exciting for, you know, potentially for grid storage and applications that don't need incredibly high energy density. And if the, those things go to scale, that's going to get rid of a lot of the worries about materials. Of, uh, and uh, lithium, I'm not worried about lithium abundance at all. There's tons of lithium in the world. Direct lithium extraction technologies exist. New ones are being developed daily. I'm working with several clients. I, I did a demo plant for uh, my former employer for a company called Standard Lithium uh, as one example. They have access to this uh, smack over brine in Arkansas, where uh, another company has been producing bromine from that brine uh, since the 1920s. And they just, they did the deal with them. They said, hey, do you mind if we borrow this 10,000 gallons a minute of brine that you're pumping to back into the ground? Can we borrow it and take the lithium out of it? And then you put it back in the ground? And they said, sure, give us a cut. Deal. No mine. No new wells, just a processing plant. If the technology works as well as expected, uh, cost of lithium could be quite exceptionally good and no new mine required. So th this is the sort of creative thinking you need. Yeah, and there are, you know, they continue to be these sort of um, opportunities to improve as we go through, because we are applying technology here, you know, uh, to, to this. In those places where we're not fighting fundamental problems, like bad properties or thermodynamics mm -hmm. right so if you don't have these giant boulder roadblocks in front of you you can see the, the path forward and there's no giant uh, uh you know fundamental uh, obstacles in your way it's a simple matter of pursuing it and that's the thing with hydrogen i see people just beating themselves against the same boulder hoping that it's going to move and it's not moving because it's you know <laughs> physics this podcast really celebrates a lot of entrepreneurs. So if there was, you know, someone out there listening to this podcast that wanted to get involved in the energy transition, and there was one area that you think is a problem that needs a good entrepreneur to go and try and solve it. We've talked a little bit about battery chemistry. Is there one that comes to, to your mind? Well, you see, I honestly, I think, you, you know, if, if I, if I saw that I'd be pursuing it myself. Uh, I, there are lots of them. I'm working with clients on clients have come up with them, but here's my fundamental frustration for decades, for decades, I would have smart, motivated, uh, you know, hearts in the right place. Uh, people come into my former employer and say, we've got this great strategy to decarbonize X, whatever X is. And we think that we can break even relative to, uh, you know, the conventional fossil way of making X with $50 a ton carbon tax. And so you go, oh, that, that sounds pretty interesting. And we get paid to build a pilot plant, whether the thing works out or not, or whether it makes money or not. So uh, it, we're not really in a position to say yes or no, we're just there to help. 
right? So we go and we build them a pilot plant and they run it and everything works. And it's going to be $100 a ton that they need to break even instead of 50. They were being a little bit optimistic, right? And we don't put in place $100 a ton carbon tax and they go broke. How many times does that have to happen to you to make you realize that the problem isn't one of a lack of innovation, a lack of motivation, it's a lack of economics. And why are the economics not there? Because the policy isn't there. So this ESG business and the notion that, that uh, you know, consumers are going to voluntarily choose to spend more money in order to do the right thing for the world, forget it. What you need is carbon taxes and emission bans and other regulatory controls. And until you have them, you will not have a transition. You will have a lot of people moving their mouths, talking about, talking a good game, pushing stuff that won't actually do anything like hydrogen as a fuel, okay? Because that pushes the, the uh, problem down the road and allows the status quo to continue for longer. So it's not a problem of a lack of innovation. It's a problem of a lack of policy. And you can't, I'm an engineer, I can't fix that. I can yell loudly about how it's, need, how it's needed, but I cannot fix that. And there's, you know, when I think about the projects that I've done, I've been involved in over the years, I, I don't need to put up my second hand, much less take my shoes and socks off to count the number of them where people have found magic solutions that do both. Okay, the electric car does both, by the way. It gives you a lower total cost of operation, lower overall cost of operation, right? The extra capital is paid back massively by reduction in energy cost and maintenance cost. So the electric car is one example. But another example, some clever guys, um, again, in 2014, came into our, our place and they said, look, there's, we know that there's going to be a structural difference in price between oil and gas, and it's going to last for long enough for reasons that we understand to make a buck from. We've looked at all the opportunities to do that, and we've rejected all of them. All the conventional ones that people are thinking about, they're all garbage. We looked at the economics, they all don't, they look terrible to us. They settled on the least sexy thing imaginable, which is carbon black. Carbon black's what's make what what makes rubber products like tires black. Okay, it's a greasy black material, it's a solid. It's used as a reinforcing agent and keep UV light from destroying the, the rubber material and so on. And it's largely made from uh, heavy oils. Uh, by partial combustion. It's a very dirty, noxious process, very messy. Comes These out guys the figured out a way. Distillation column, I guess. Like, oh, yeah, the, the, the stuff that comes out the bottom of the distillation column is called residuum or, or petroleum resid. And that's fed to a burner that kind of partially burns it and then it's quenched. And, and that's, how they make, uh, that's how they make carbon black conventionally. And these guys figured out a way to do it to make carbon black from natural gas using a plasma arc. And the byproduct is hydrogen that's made with no CO2 emissions. They not only made this process work, that it makes reinforcing grade carbon black, but they make hydrogen as a byproduct. And of course, they're smart. They make it into ammonia. And they located their facility in Nebraska, where there's a disused nuclear power plant that was built in advance of demand that never materialized. So they get cheap, dispatchable, low CO2 emissions electricity. They feed that to the plasma arc. They take fossil uh, uh, gas from the grid. 
they make carbon black and hydrogen, they make hydrogen into ammonia. And if you draw a hundred mile radius around their plant, it's 40% of the ammonia users in the United States. And they can make carbon black and ammonia cheap enough that they make money right now with no carbon taxes. So imagine how much money they will make when the carbon black that they're competing against and the, and the ammonia that they're competing against is made more expensive by virtue of carbon taxes. But that's one project in decades. Okay, super smart people. And by the way, this company's called Monolith Materials and the, the US DOE just uh, approved a, a, a loan or a loan guarantee or something like that for a billion dollars for them to expand their uh, first commercial plant to uh, you know truly large commercial scale. The trouble is that that process you know, you saturate the carbon black market, you're only talking about whatever $10 billion, and you're only making uh, whatever the number is, uh, 5 million tons of hydrogen a year. Uh, so really, it's not going to decarbonize hydrogen production. It, there, by the time you start trying to decarbonize hydrogen production by such a method, uh, although every little bit helps, it only helps a little. And if you start trying to do this by making carbon products in excess of market demand and having to bury them in reverse coal mines, the economics don't look very exciting. Let's just put it that way. So, you know, there's lots of clever people out there working hard. Uh, the problem is you need policy. And if you don't have the policy or if the policy is bad policy because it's been written uh, tailored to order by um, lobbyists, then you get market distorting stuff that doesn't help like giving a dollar fifty, a dollar fifty a kilogram hydrogen, a three dollar per kilogram subsidy, if it's green. You know that's going to drag hydrogen into some good uses. It's also going to drag hydrogen into some very dumb ones, <laughs> because you're paying tw twice as much in subsidy as what the commodity you're competing against is worth. It's it's mad, you know. So bad policy leads to bad decisions. Yeah, understand. Paul, we're going to have to start wrapping up. Um, so before yep. we do, we've got our, uh, our WhatsApp section. So it's three quick questions with three quick responses. Um, yep. And actually, the first question I chose is really relevant to what we were just discussing. So I almost want to feed you the answer, but I'm going to leave it up to you. <laughs> the question is, what would you recommend to someone looking to get involved in climate? So it could be the area they go into, the thing they want to study, what problems to focus on. You talked a lot about policy. So... Well, what do you like? You know, that's the real the real question. What what turns you crank? What are you interested in? That's what you should pursue. Uh, with me, I loved chemistry, and that was fascinating. And I've built a great career for myself out of chemistry uh, as a chemical engineer, though not as a chemist. So pursue what you like. Second question and, is, and make sure that it's related to decarbonization. Believe me, you can find a way to do it. Yeah, and that, I think that's the main message that I've always wanted to get across is that we need a lot of different skills in that space. You know, everything from software through to policymaking and politicians. Yeah. So for second sure. question for me is, um, who is leading the energy transition? Who's leading the energy transition? You Nobody, because that. it's not you happening. <laughs> Nobody, because it's not happening. Uh, I, would, I would say that there are... Uh, uh, there are exciting and also um, upsetting things happening in Europe. Uh, the most exciting thing that's happening in Europe is sincere talk about carbon um, 
border adjustment or import tariffs against nation, the goods and services of nations that don't put carbon taxes in place. That might actually make some nations that won't put carbon taxes in place do it. Canada, where I live, we've got a carbon tax in place, and it's a good system that's well supported by the population because it matches the carbon tax with a dividend. Look that system up. It's fabulous. It's well supported by the Canadian public. And we were told that nobody would accept it. We were told we'd have riots in the street. Didn't happen. People like it. That's a really good example. I will look that up, actually. Final question is, if you weren't powering a decarbonized future, what would you be doing? Well, I can tell you that my um, what I started out doing I've always been an environmentalist. And so I saw, I, I thought that I had a duty originally to try to fix the mistakes of the past. So I spent the first five years of my career basically trying to clean up messes that other people had left behind, either on purpose or, or uh, by accident because they didn't know any better. And I very quickly realized that that was a waste of time. Frankly, it was just a waste of time. You, you can do way more good and you will have way more impact working on the front end of the pipe than working on the back end of the pipe. So look where the energy is being used in quantity, go there. That's the thing to pursue because that's the thing that's gonna make the difference. That's a really good note to, to sound off on. So Paul, I just wanna thank you so much for your, your time today. It's been really, uh, really insightful for, for me. And I'm uh, so glad that someone of your caliber is, is working in this space and putting all your energy into it. Oh, thanks a lot for inviting me. It's been a fun conversation.